This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. And for those of us that are going to stay in for the sermon, let me encourage you to open your Bibles to Genesis 29. We'll be looking at the end of Genesis 29 and much of chapter 30 together this morning. Let's pray before we look to God's word. Lord, we ask that you would show yourself now as we look to your word. There is no help that I have to provide apart from you, apart from what we see here of you in your word. And so would you give us eyes now to see it? ears to hear it, hearts to receive it. Lord, many of us find ourselves in the midst of difficulty and challenges that look a lot like Genesis 29 and 30. If we were honest, uh, sometimes in our home life, in our families, in our histories, we see these things. And so we bring a lot of pain and experience and maybe right now current um, pain and even sin that is distracting us. And Lord, we pray that nothing would would take us away from what you'd have for us to hear and see this morning. Jesus, we pray that you would be exalted. We pray that we would be ready and eager to lay down idols and give ourselves wholly to you. Lord, we ask that you would do that in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is God enough? Uh, I don't ask you that as a way to bring about guilt or to condemn you, but as really an invitation. Is he enough? Are his words uh, sufficient? Are they trustworthy enough that you truly can anchor your life to them? Do you find yourself submitted to him this morning as your maker, the one who made you as you are, in his image to glorify him? Do you trust his plan for you, your body, your sexuality, your relationships with others, your future? Can you trust in God's plan? Can you even rejoice in God's plan for that? We could have posed all these questions to our first parents, Adam and Eve. Uh, They were with God in a way that you and I can't really fully understand. God had given them himself, his guiding word, abundant provision, and yet they thought they were in some way getting cheated, that God was holding out on them that they wanted more. And so they went outside of God's good plan. They broke that glorious fellowship that they enjoyed and made their own way. Friends, we too can make our own way. We still live in their world. Just consider the conversations that we have now that we think of as regular and common that even 10 years ago would have been seen as almost completely foreign 
For us to, to just believe and to, to say what the Bible says about God's creating, for example, humans as male and female, that to say that that is something, a reality that is fixed at birth. We are born male or female. Today, that is controversial. That is offensive to many. Today, we get to decide and declare our own pronouns, our own gender, as we see fit. Think about marriage. God created marriage as a lifelong union between one man and one woman. And, and today, divorce is just as easy as going through the drive through for lunch later today. Marriage has been reworked and reimagined into something that is altogether different from the parties that are involved to what their roles and commitment would be to one another, a man's role or a woman's role or a man's role in, the, in, in a family or in the church or a woman's role. If we begin to speak about those things with any kind of specifics, we are immediately seen to be abusive or dated or whatever the situation may be. Satan tempted Eve by saying, you can be like God. It wasn't enough to be made in God's own image and enjoy his good plan. We needed more. And I say we because not just they, because the, the sin recorded in Genesis 3, we know still in some way resides in our own hearts this morning. It beckons us to more. It beckons us to now, to jealousy, to self and ultimately to death. So in contrast, consider what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13. He commends us to brotherly love, hospitality, loving those that are mistreated, holding marriage up as honorable and undefiled, keeping your life free from the love of money. All of those, I think, are subtle reminders to us of our shifting and drifting hearts because he concludes with this summary. He says, be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. Being content with what you have doesn't begin with your spouse or kids or family or your singleness, your job, your body, your church, your house or your bank account. Underneath all of that is a reminder that we find contentment in your God who will never leave you and never forsake you. Is God enough for us? We're going to ask this question as we go through this unfolding story of the genesis of the people of Israel in the first book of the Bible. The account of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to make him a great nation. That doesn't come about the way that we might think, unless you were expecting bitter jealousy and sex for hire and idolatry. But what we don't expect is that God would still, through it all, keep his promises and override man's sinfulness to bring about his good plan, a plan that would redeem sinners, like we find in our story before us. Even sinners who have said and sometimes live like, we need more than God, sinners like us. So the main point of our passage is that God is indeed enough. God is enough. He's more than enough. We're going to see his power and plan and goodness and grace triumph once again over human scheming and sinfulness as the, the heads of 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel are born. 
We're going to see the birth of 12 children in seven years, 11 sons and one daughter, and 12 sons will be born in coming chapters. <clears throat> now, if you take out your bulletin insert, you'll notice there um, a, a chart, a family kind of tree of, of Abraham. My wife reminded me last week that I'm throwing a bunch of names out really quickly, and they sound alike, and a lot of them, yeah. So maybe this will be a help to you, just to have a guide that you can look, and as we're going through names, and we're going to go through a lot of those names today, you're going to have a guide for those names. It's the, the, the chart is up there on the, the screen, and we're going to magnify parts of that as we go through our passage. So hopefully that'll be a, a useful guide to you as you even look at some of the ironic and poetic meaning of some of these Names. The births that come <clears throat> through this, this story come in really three sets of four. And that'll be our outline as we go through the text. Uh, we're going to see, uh, if you want to know up front, here's what they are. First, we're going to see four children born by Leah in verses 31 to 35. Then four by Bilhah and Zippah in, in chapter 30, verses 1 to 13. And then four by Leah and Rachel, verses 14 to 24. More than a list of names... Uh, this passage is a catalog of God's faithfulness amidst great sinfulness on the part of man. And so that's for us to see and to take heart, to repent ourselves and to be confronted with our own idols and lay them down, to, to be confronted with our own envy and bitterness and jealousy and take up trust and joy in God. And we just need God's help for that. So may he help us as we look at this text together. So first, we'll begin by thinking about these four children that are born to Leah. There's several spokes around the wheel of this theme in the passage that God is enough. But the way that it, this, this truth is expressed comes through the bearing of children. Okay, so that's going to be the way that we're going to think about it. Notice the way that brackets off our passage. Look in chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. That's the way the passage begins. Look at the way that our passage ends in chapter 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. So Moses is highlighting for us this biblical truth. That is still true today, even with all of our medical advances, God opens and closes the womb. The Bible teaches that children are a gift, a reward from the Lord. Psalm 127.3. He's the giver of life. And this frames the passage. It's like parentheses that bracket it off. But the, what the frame shows us in the middle is a group of people that don't yet believe that that are still trying to, to, to come around to understand God's goodness and sovereignty in their own lives. So, so verse 31 of chapter 29 tells a story early in its own right. It shows both the positive and negative side of God's sovereignty in this whole story. He opened Leah's womb, but Rachel was, was barren. And that doesn't mean that God was very involved with Leah and not involved with Rachel. He's equally involved with both women. God opens and closes. He's active in both of their lives now. You're saying he's active in Rachel's barrenness, that he's, he's keeping her from having children? Yes. How could, he, how could that be? How do, we, how do we get our minds around that? I think we go back to a, a passage that we've gone to before, Romans 11. How unsearchable are the judgments of God? Inscrutable his ways. 
His ways are higher than our ways. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. He is sovereign and we need to, to bow our hearts to Him and understand He's God and we're not. He is the, the potter, we are the clay. So we see that, that reality of His sovereignty here. We also are reminded that Leah was hated. And that's a reference to her by her husband Jacob. So we saw last week how, how Laban, if you remember Laban is Leah's father, okay? She deceived Jacob into marrying Leah when he had labored for Rachel for seven years. He did a, a switcheroo on the wedding night, and instead of Rachel, it was Leah. And we have to, we go back to that story, believe in some way Leah was involved in that deception, right? She had to be complicit in some way. So we can imagine her pretending to be Rachel in the darkness of that, of that wedding night in a similar way that Jacob pretended to be Esau, taking advantage of the darkness of his father's eyesight. And so this, this has, of course, affected their relationship. And so we read in chapter 29, verse 30, that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. That's what hated means here in this context, loved less, perhaps despised, overlooked as a wife of multiple wives. But even with Leah's involvement in the deception, at whatever level that was, the Lord sees her. He sees Leah and that she is despised and hated and he is drawn to her and blesses her with a child. And not just one. And so let's read this first list of four children that Leah bears beginning in verse 32 and you can kind of see an outline here on the screen. Verse 32, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me the son, this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three Sons, therefore his name was Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So on the screen you'll notice the list of all the sons. And I also listed there what their names sound like. That's in parentheses. And then Leah's description of each of them. Okay, and 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 You'll see how they have, most of them, some relationship with, with her and the Lord and particularly with her own situation. The naming of these children reflects the hearts of the mothers. Both of these mothers, all of these mothers, four of them in, this, in, the, in the passage. Well, two of them, they're naming. So what can we learn about Leah's heart? Well, the first thing she realizes is like Hagar, that the Lord hears and cares for the afflicted and the despised. Reuben's name sounds like, see, it's a son. So see, and she exclaims, the Lord has looked upon my affliction. So the Lord has seen it. And she proclaims then that the Lord has heard that, that I was hated by naming her son Simeon, which sounds like the Hebrew word for heard. And then when Judah is born, there's really no reference there to, to Jacob at all. Judah sounds like the, the, the verb praise in Hebrew. And she just says, this time, forget Jacob, I'm going to praise the Lord. No reference to him at all. And so don't you see 
Don't you see where she is as she's naming these children and you can see her heart just just overflowing in her desire for her husband and what she desperately wants, she doesn't get. I wonder if you ever feel like this, if you're a Christian here this morning. Do you ever feel like Leah? Do you ever feel rejected? Maybe even hated by someone that you cherish, you love? Do you ever find yourself in a relationship where you are doing all of the giving and the other person seems to be doing only receiving? Or perhaps this person that you love has, in fact, left you completely. Maybe a spouse, maybe a parent, maybe a friend, or maybe what they've done is about the same thing as abandoning you. It's been so hurtful. Beloved, Leah reminds us that the Lord sees. The Lord hears your cries. He is there, that you're not alone. He knows you're hurt. Your circumstance doesn't mean that he has deserted you. When the people of Israel were groaning out to God because of their slavery, the Lord hears their cries. Uh, Exodus 2.25 says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God sees and knows your condition, believer. Preach that truth to yourself. And never listen to the whispers of the evil one. That would, and don't let those take root that would say, God doesn't know. God doesn't care. You need more. He's holding on to you. Don't let that thinking seep in. It seems to be seeping in in Leah's heart some. She names her son Levi. I've noticed that in verse 34, which sounds like the word in Hebrew, attached. Thinking now... My husband will be attached to me. When you expect her to say, well, now God will be attached to me. God has provided for me. I want God more than anything. But no, her deepest desire is to be loved by Jacob. That is her deepest desire. That only becomes more clear as the passage goes on. And she will be disappointed. So will you. So will I. When we make our greatest love, our greatest source of satisfaction, anything other than God. We won't find true joy anywhere else. So, husbands, you need to be reminded that your wife is not your God. She can't be your God. And if you try to make her your God in your marriage, it will fall apart. Let God be your God. He is the only one that can truly and will truly satisfy you and free you to then love and serve your wife in a much more biblical and satisfying way. Wives, seek the Lord because you won't find eternal satisfaction in your husband. We were at, uh, my wife and I, and she's not here, so I can say that. Oh, she's probably watching. We were at an engagement party this weekend, and someone was making a toast, and they said something like, marriage has its ups and downs. And I, my wife, amen that. <laughs> amen. And I just kind of looked at her like, are you aiming in the ups or the downs? Wives, don't, don't look for satisfaction and salvation from your husband. He is not, we are not equipped for that. If you're single here, brother, sister, marriage is not the answer for you that's going to save you. It is not going to be a very good God for you. It won't solve all of your problems. Neither will having children. 
Whatever the thing is that you think, if I only had this, everything else would fall into place, and that thing isn't God, you will be disappointed. God has to be the source. He has to be the goal of all that we are. He has to be enough. Is he enough? As that paragraph paragraph closes, we learn that Leah has ceased bearing children. But we have to ask the question, well, why is that? Well, of course, uh, God is sovereign, but I think we'll see some practical um, answers as we continue on into our next scene. Let's look at another set of four sons that are born here. It's four by Bilhah and Zilpah. These are the, the, the servant maids of Leah and Rachel. The events in chapter 30 seem to be happening, so at the same time as the events in chapter 29. Okay, so these additional seven years that Jacob, if you remember, he's serving, La- serving Laban. He's already been given his wife, but he still owes seven years of, of labor. That, those seven years are full of tension and strife. Well, why is that? Because there's, ch- there's children born from four different women by him. So let's, let's pick it up in chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she, being Leah, bore Jacob no, or no, sorry, that's herself. When Jake, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister, that's Leah, and she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. So Leah bowed at the altar of her husband's love and for Rachel, it's children. She must have children. She would rather die than be barren. Friends, I can't think of a clearer identity marker for idolatry than for us to say something like, this thing is so important in my life that apart from it, I don't want to live anymore. When you say or think, I'd rather die than have fill in the blank taken away from me. Or life would not be worth living apart from blank. A lot of country songs go like that. If those blanks are not the Lord, in a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are worshiping idols. Let's just think biblically about it together. Rachel is asking Jacob to give her something he simply cannot give. She is literally asking him to be God. And he, he picks up on it and gets angry about it. Verse 2, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So when we have an idol, we will protect it at all costs and we'll go after anyone that tries to keep us from it. So if my idol is recognition and you kind of bring me down in front of others or tell embarrassing stories in front of others, I'm going to go after you. I'm not going to like that very much. If it's money and you have more money than me, I'm going to both envy you and hate you at the same time. So, so Jacob responds rightly here. He's, he's not in the place of God. There's nothing. He can't do this. God is sovereign. He brings about the fruit of the womb. But this isn't the most maybe loving way to express that to his wife. This isn't maybe he's not shepherding her the, the best like he ought to. There's not a lot of, of love and compassion here. He's certainly not praying for her the way that Isaac prayed for Rebecca and God answered that, that prayer. He kind of just leaves her to her own devices in his own anger. And then we read about those devices, beginning in verse 3. Look there. Then she said, Here is my servant, Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through 
her. Now, we, we've seen this before. Rachel follows Sarah's strategy for maneuvering around God's providence, his good providence, by now giving her maid servant to her husband to provide children. And this, of course, is going to only introduce more problems to the relationship. When we are after what we love most, we will do anything to get it, even transgress God's commands. And let me just say one brief aside here. Uh, just in the realm of human reproduction today, there are many ethical hurdles that we have to think through that, that Jacob and Rachel, for example, didn't have to deal with. I've been doing some premarital counseling recently, and this has been a fresh topic on my mind. But, but, but here we, we see we, there's a spectrum of these. We see surrogacy. surrogacy. Uh, we know that's still around today. And we at least know from what we see in Scripture that it turns out to be about like polygamy and any kind of sexual intimacy outside of marriage to be a disaster. And so, Christian, let me just encourage you to think biblically as you are navigating some of these questions. If you're in a season of life or you're thinking through maybe on the, the variety, the spectrum of varieties of contraception or even fertility treatments on offer today, just understand all those things are not created equal. And so we need to measure those things by the whole counsel of Scripture and not let our desire for something trump the Lord and His Word, honoring Him and His Word. And this is why I think you're in community. We, we, we don't follow Jesus by ourselves. We follow Him in community with other believers and, and with elders who love you and will help shepherd you some of these, through some of these difficult decisions maybe that you're, you're trying to think through. But let me just encourage you to think biblically, think together with others, and don't put yourself in a place where you're, you're sinning because you're putting yourself in the place of God. He provides. He can be trusted. But like Abraham here, we, we, we see the shadow of Genesis 3 looming. Jacob listens to his wife, and this is what we read beginning in verse 4. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. So, like Leah, Rachel is naming her children in a way that reflects her heart at the time. You see the, the names here on the screen. She names the first son Dan, which in Hebrew uh, sounds like judged, or it could also mean vindicated. I think maybe there's both senses that are played out in this context. But, but she is clearly acknowledging that God has heard her voice. And so then her second son, Naphtali, sounds like wrestling, and, and Rachel notes, and if you have the ESV or you have a footnote there, that, that there's kind of this double meaning of, of wrestling with God and then also with her sister, and she prevails. Uh, and she's not going to be the only one who wrestles with God in our story. It's a preview of what's to come. But you just get a sense of this competitive, rival nature of their relationship. Okay, it's not going to go this way. I'm going to make it happen this way. I'm going to get ahead of her. And so like Cain and Abel and Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau and what we'll see with Joseph and his brothers, now we have Rachel and Leah who are more rivals than siblings. And, and, and all this is happening. Leah is seeing it, and it's as if she feels like she's falling behind in a race. And so 
she, she's not going to have that. Verse 9, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. So, so Leah's fifth son, now by her servant maid, is named Gad, which sounds like good fortune. She says good fortune or even good luck uh, has come. Uh, it's interesting that Isaiah refers to an actual idol that was worshipped named Fortune and Destiny, capital F, capital D. Uh, he mentions it in Isaiah 65. He's, uh, he says, but you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, capital F, and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, capital D, I will destine you to the sword. But Leah is now fully involved in Rachel's game. She names her next son, Asher, which sounds like happy. And she says, not only is she happy, but all the women who are around her and see her are happy. They call her happy. It's just like she's rubbing it in Rachel's face. But we all know deep down, it's very unlikely that Leah's happy. All she wants is Jacob and for Jacob to love her. And all Rachel wants is children. Neither of them are satisfied with what they've been given. All they want is what the other person has. They're not finding joy in the Lord who has blessed them left and right. Neither of them are willing to wait on the Lord for his plan. Beloved, we, we have to learn this, don't we? To wait on the Lord, to trust the Lord. We do it, Paul says in Romans 12, 12, by rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, and constant in prayer. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. Why? Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Isaiah 30, verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. But when we're jealous and envious, we are forgetting God's provision for us. We are forgetting who God is, and we're falling into a kind of functional atheism, thinking about that, that if I don't get what I want when I want it, I can't, I can't, I can't go on. I'm going to be left out. I won't get all that I deserve, and, and I can't have that. Friend, have you forgotten God's goodness to you? Have you forgotten his goodness are you able to rejoice with others that rejoice? Maybe when they get something that you don't have, maybe even something that you wish you did have, are you able to rejoice when they rejoice? Is your heart so fixed on something that it is stealing away your affection for the Lord, for Christ? These women only are, are craving the thing that the other has, and they won't be satisfied until they get it. Friend, I just wonder, is there anything that's making it hard for you to say with joy and faith that God is enough? What makes it hard to say that? Well, our story takes another unexpected turn as we look at the next section of, of, of births. 
We'll look at this together now. Four by Leah and Rachel. And we're still in the middle of this back and forth, this battle between Rachel and Leah. And remember, their father, Laban, is the one who put them in this situation uh, with all these terrible consequences to follow. But we know these words are echoing over all of the situation. Genesis 3.16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. That's certainly happening. It's certainly coming to pass. God's word is not returning void. There is all sorts of pain happening through childbearing in our verses, in this passage. The layers of pain are so many. Rachel is still fixed on her prize, and she's going to seek any means that she can to get it. <clears throat> so look at, <clears throat> excuse me, look at verse 14. In the days of the, the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. I don't know if you're familiar with mandrakes. These aren't the Harry Potter mandrakes. The mandrake plant is referred to basically as the love fruit. So in Hebrew, it sounds like the word lover. Um, Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, beauty, and sex, was called the lady of the mandrake. So it is this well-known aphrodisiac and fertility drug in the ancient world. This, this superstitious cultic practice of, of having mandrakes will bring you children. That's why Rachel wants them. And she's saying, if I, if I can't get pregnant God's way, I'm going to do it this other way. She still has, I think, some, some pagan roots that have yet to be severed. We're going to see that later in our story. But Leah's response um, is interesting. So let me have some of those mandrakes. This is how family talks to each other, right? Verse 15, but she said to her, is it a small matter that he have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Say what? <laughs> like how quickly did that escalate? Right, here we again see Leah's pain and bitterness that's directed at Rachel and she says, you have taken away my husband. I think that hints at the idea that Rachel, being the preferred wife, kind of determines who Jacob will sleep with each night. And since she's jealous of Leah having so many children, she keeps Jacob away from Leah. Therefore, Leah ceases bearing. This is likely what I think is going on in chapter 29, verse 35. And so Rachel makes a deal, another deal in Genesis. Leah can sleep with Jacob if she can have Reuben's mandrakes, which she thinks will make her fertile and produce children. Are you kidding me? My friends, this is how it happened. The Bible does not sugarcoat sin. You can imagine the people of Israel reading this story as they're, they're, they're wandering perhaps in the wilderness or coming away from that and thinking, wow, this is my family history. I'm of this tribe and you're of this tribe and that's why you're named this. Whoa. This is the fourth like commercial-like exchange uh, for spiritual blessings that's happened in this family alone. If you remember, Esau traded his birthright for stew. Isaac was willing to bless Esau for a meal, a delicious meal. 
Laban makes Jacob labor for 14 years for his daughters, and now Rachel hires out her husband for a bowl of fertility fruit. This is a broken, sinful, messed up family. Does anyone relate to that? Anyone have a family like that or a history like that or you've been through things like that and you, you kind of think about your life and you say, there is no hope. I am too far gone. This is, this, this is off the rails so far. God would not do anything with it. But amidst all the, the scheming and sinning here, God is miraculously at work. I think of the most evil act in history. The, the crucifying of Jesus Christ himself. Listen to way, the way the early church prays with regard to that. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. They say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. If God was working together those things, the most evil event in history for the salvation of his people, this is child's play, what we see here in Genesis 30. Leah's blood is going to flow in the veins, as we said last week, of Moses and Aaron and David and Jesus Christ himself, who comes to redeem sinners, like the very ones that we're reading about, like the very ones in this room. To make them new, to forgive sins, to bring newness of life. No matter how messed up your situation is this morning, there is hope for you in Christ. Come to Christ. Find hope, find life, enjoy. This story gets a little bit worse. Let's, let's continue to read. Verse 16. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you. With my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Isaacar. Then Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. You can see how God listened on the slide to Leah. It is amazing that God listens to Leah. His undeserved mercy is poured out. And again, as she names these children, you see her heart bubble out. It still comes through. Isaacar sounds like wages in Hebrew. And Leah thinks that God is rewarding her for her scheme against Jacob. So he's giving me my wages. And then Zebulun sounds like honor. But not honor for the Lord, but honor from her husband. To honor her. That's her goal. And so she mixes in this, this praise to God for sure, but, but also with her own selfish desires. And this is the sneakiest kind of idolatry, isn't it? Using God for something else, worshiping him to get something that we really want. Despite this, despite the mixed motives in these prayers, God listens to her. God blesses, and not just with sons, but, but with a daughter as well. Dinah is born there in verse 21. 
And we're not given all the, the details about her name as we are about the sons, but we know that this is a really a preview of what's going to, the, the story where she's going to be featured later in chapter 34. But friends, don't miss this. Notice the one who gave up the mandrakes, the fertility cult, mystic drug, has more children. Leah has seven children in total, six sons. And if we just approximate the time it takes for her to have these children, it would be around three years from that mandrake trade that Rachel remained barren the whole time. Moses is reinforcing this main point that the Lord opens the womb. The Lord brings life and true satisfaction. Trust the Lord. Case in point, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her. She's praying and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. There's no reference to any outside assistance or mandrakes. The Lord remembered Rachel, like he remembered Noah in chapter 8, and she conceives. It's been 14 years since her betrothal to Jacob, but the Lord is faithful. And now we see Joseph born, whose name sounds like taken away in Hebrew. Uh, but Rachel exclaims, may the Lord add to me another son. And, and so, so her, her reproach is taken away. We could definitely see it that way. We could also see this in kind of a prophetic way that Joseph himself is going to be taken away later in our story. But he will also return and he will bring God's people with him. And notice in chapter 30, verse 25, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. It's like Joseph is the sign of going back to the promised land. Just a preview of things to come. Rachel's prayer for another son. So she's blessed with, her reproach is gone, blessed with a son, and her, her prayer or naming of the son, may I have another son? I, I just think that that's interesting. It's like she's blessed and she celebrates by asking for more. And so I think there's a hint of her heart coming through yet again here. I, I need more. But friends, how many of our prayers are this way? How, how often does God sanctify our prayers through, through the, the intercessory work of Jesus Christ, our own mixed motives, and still show mercy and grace to us? She will have another son, uh, Benjamin. But ironically, it will come at the cost of her own life. So she dies in childbirth. Remember her words in chapter 30, verse 1, Give me children or I will die. So her life, in a way, lines up with her desires. So I just pray that we would see that and that we would remember the words of the Apostle John. He said this in chapter, 1 John chapter 5. He said, And we know that the Son of God has come and is giving us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He could, have, he could have just left it there. 
What an amazing statement of faith. But he doesn't leave it there. He concludes with this sentence. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. You have Jesus Christ. We have Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, who died in our place, rose from the grave, who gives new life, life abundantly. And one day we will see him face to face. Friends, turn from your sin, your worship of false gods, of little happinesses that only last for seconds or minutes or weeks or months and get on the billion-year plan for satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Give yourself to eternal joy, joy that no one can take away. God is in the business of turning barrenness and death into life. Jesus comes into this world, not through a barren woman, but through a virgin. And he came to say that God is enough. He's enough. He's enough to save and he's enough to satisfy. So as we close, just ask yourself, okay, I see this truth. I see it played out. Is it true for me in my life? What's happening in my own application of this reality? Is he enough for me? Do I see my life as a gift? Am I waiting on God in faith? Or am I working on some commercial exchange to get what I really want most? Do I believe that no matter how dark my situation how rejected I feel that God sees me and God hears me and is with me. Do you believe that? Are you seeking fulfillment in him? Is there envy in your heart, jealousy in your heart that just needs to be confessed and laid down this morning? Turned over to him. Friends, that is the beauty of the gospel. We turn over our sin. we, we, We get rid of it. It can be turned over to Jesus. You can be free from it. There's an exchange that happens in the gospel that is unlike any that we have ever, we have seen so far in our text. There's nothing we can offer. We can't trade stew or our best meal or the very best effort we'd give of our own labor for years and years, a lifetime. We have no mandrakes. All that we bring to the table is our sin. But by faith, When you come to Jesus, he takes away your sin and you receive his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 sums it up. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, that's the trade. That's the exchange. That's the good news. Is that enough? It's enough. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would make us into a people that worship you for who you are. That see your mercy for what it is. And who are quick to identify 
ways in which we can prop our lives up with other things, crutches that we can try to put under other things just to make us feel a little bit better. But Lord, we pray we would find total security in you. We pray that we would find total trust in your plan for us. Lord, we see the things that are happening around us right now and we don't understand. We don't know how they fit together. But Lord, we trust in you and you do know. You know everything. You have ordained all these things for the good of your people and the glory of your name that Christ would be exalted. And so we just pray that you would form our hearts to desire that more and more. That you would do a transforming work in our hearts. And Lord, we pray that we would find our lasting deepest joy in you. We ask that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen.